The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Our scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 10. And we'll, we'll read the whole chapter. It's 20 verses. Ecclesiastes 10, 1 through 20. Remember, as I read, as you follow along and listen, this, this is God's word. Ecclesiastes 10, 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, and he does not know the way to the city, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land. When your king is the son of the nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful once again for your word. We know that it is alive and active, that it's perfect, without fault, truthful in all that it contains. Use your living, inerrant word now in our midst, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. This, uh, this chapter is seen by many as a sort of random collection of proverbial sayings, uh, that it contains uh, simply proverbs that have no unifying theme, nothing that holds them together. And this is understandable. It seems to move from subject to subject. It moves from work to uh, the words that we use and leadership, who we're governed by. And even to our thoughts at the end, these honest thoughts that end up causing trouble in verse 20. And yet I think if we look more closely, 
there is actually a theme that runs through all of this in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes 10 gives us a series of situations, a, a kind, these kinds of realities of life. It's a sort of reality check for us in various aspects of our li- life. And, and, and along with giving us this situation, along with giving us this problem, these problems that emerge from life, it also ends up giving us a solution or at least pointing us toward a solution. Now, the situation that Ecclesiastes 10 envisions, the situation that it describes for us, is a situation that I think is best exemplified by a a painting, or at least well exemplified by a painting that was used recently in an exhibit to illustrate Ecclesiastes 10. It's an old painting. It's a painting by an Italian master named Garzoni, and, and it's entitled Still Life with Melon and Grapes. And The reason why it was chosen for this exhibit to represent Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is if you look carefully at the painting, at first it appears to be a beautiful still life of fresh, ripe fruit, this melon and grapes on a table. But if you focus in on the picture, if you get just a little bit closer, what you realize is that what the artist has done in in a very subtle way is he's placed a, a fly right on top of that ripe fruit. And when you examine more closely, not only is there a fly in the fruit, but the fruit itself along the edges is already beginning to rot. And that's an illustration really of something that the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 10 is trying to remind us of, is trying to emphasize that in a sense, no part of our lives taken in isolation and judged by human standards is ever quite as neat and perfect as we want it to be. There are, there are broad counsels that we can take. There are broad perspectives and ways to live. And in fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us those. But as he examines the various facets of our lives, uh, what he acknowledges is that nothing is quite as perfect or as neat or as tidy as it initially seems. It reminds me of uh, 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 an experience that I had when I was younger. It sort of stuck with me because it was so jarring at the time. Uh, We arrived on vacation at this particular place where we were staying, and there was this beautiful sports car uh, right where we entered. And it was was sort of a dream car for me at the time. I was probably 9 or 10 years old, and I saw it and was just in awe of this car. So immediately after getting out of our car, I went to look at it. And what I realized is that the car had been positioned in such a way that it only showed one side of it and that the side of it was beautiful. But what I realized as I walked around the car was the other side had been completely demolished. It had been in some accident. And that's the kind of jarring experience you get when reading Ecclesiastes 10. Everything appears initially to to look just so. But beneath the surface, it's obvious that nothing is quite as neat as it seems. Now, this is summarized really in verse 1 with this image of the dead fly in the ointment. And you can imagine the scene here. This is ointment that is probably worth a great deal. But if there are enough dead flies in it, it it ceases to be this wonderful perfume. It ceases to be something that brings about healing. In fact, it gives off a stench, she says. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. 
so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And the preacher is going to sequentially look at various aspects of life that are absolutely ruined by just a little folly and absolutely ruined oftentimes by the unpredictable nature of the life in which we live. Now, we're going to look at this sequentially, and the introduction, of course, begins in verse 1 and goes through verse 7. And what he describes here is the life of the fool and the the, the consequences of being a fool. Uh, The fool goes the opposite direction of the wise man, according to verse 2. The fool advertises himself, very obvious often, who he is. And he reminds those who are in the presence of perhaps a foolish leader in verse 4 not to uh, let their anger get the best of them. And he describes in verses 5 and 6, the fact of the matter is that in many places where there should be a wise man, in fact, there is a fool. And he'll return to this question of leadership later on in the chapter. But then in verses 8 through 11, the writer begins to analyze the work that all of us need to engage in in life. And he gives a couple of examples, not unlike the one that I experienced when I saw the car initially from one side and then saw it from the other side shortly thereafter. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, the imagery here is of someone who is performing a task, engaged in some kind of manual labor that presumably serves a a good purpose, and they're engaged in this work, digging this pit, uh, doing the work that has been given for them to do. Uh, But what's the result of it? Well, the result of it is not what they intended. The result of it is that they actually fall into it. Uh, Similarly, at the end of verse 8, you can envision a man doing a bit of construction work, a bit of remodeling of a home. He's he's breaking through a wall in order to create something better, in order to demolish, to build later on. And what happens? The serpent bites him as he breaks through the wall. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is showing to us are these circumstances. We've all experienced them to one degree or another, and we've certainly seen others who've experienced them, where someone is engaged in work that at one level may be, in fact, exactly what they should be doing, uh, but consequences that they never expected uh, emerge nonetheless. So we're reminded that we're not in control oftentimes of the way in which our work is used and of the way in which God will work through that which he's given us to do. It's Verse 9 gives another illustration. The Illustration here is one who's quarrying stones. Now, quarrying stones is a good thing. It's a noble occupation. In this case, there's no indication that what this individual was doing was something that he shouldn't have been doing. In fact, it's probably exactly what he should have been doing. Uh, But what happens as he's engaged in this labor? Well, he's hurt by these stones. What about the man who's splitting logs, doing this wise work to prepare for the winter or perhaps to have something to build with? Well, He's splitting these logs, and he himself is endangered by them. Just imagine all these incidents that you've seen in the church or seen in your lives of people who are doing that which they should have been doing. They're not in the wrong place. They're actually in the right place doing the right things. And yet, in God's providence, what happens to them is 
tragic, uh, unexpected. This one who is quarrying stones or splitting logs. And you see what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing is reminding us of the unpredictability of life. We're not in control of the circumstances. And, and, and minor things, uh, minor difficulties can disrupt a, a host of good things. We don't know how long this man was quarrying stones for, or how long he was splitting logs, or how deep the pit was, or how much of the wall had already been taken down. Perhaps it was at the very end of the job, at the very end of the day. And after all that good work, what's the outcome? Well, the outcome is he falls into the pit. The serpent has bit him. He's crushed by a stone and endangered while splitting logs. The same thing is actually true of words, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. He turns his attention away from work to words in verses 12 through 15. And what we see there is just what we've read in the introduction, that many wise words, many good words can be undone by words of folly. Look at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. The end of his talk is evil madness. Words can be used by God and are used by God to accomplish great good. In fact, we know throughout the scriptures the way in which words are to be used. We know of the ministries that God gave to the prophets, or we think of the New Testament teaching that's quite clear about the fact that faith comes by hearing, uh, hearing the word of Christ. And so words, of course, are used by God throughout the scriptures, and, and, the wise, and the wise words of a wise man can be used by God in a special way. Oh, but there are also foolish words, and foolish words undo oftentimes so much good. Uh, there is a danger whenever we open our mouths. The danger is that our, the words that come out will be words of folly and not words of wisdom, not words that build up, but words that tear down. You remember how James talks about the, the dangers of the tongue. He says, no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And he, he highlights uh, certain specific situations that are so incongruous. How can there be a, a, a tongue, a, a mouth that, that lifts its voice and prays to God and yet curses men made in the image of God? It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Well, he returns in verses 16 and 17, to this question of leadership. Leadership, as we know, is a good thing. It's ordained by God. Princes are, are ordained by God for the good of those over whom they rule. Uh, this is considered, it's, it's understood in the book of Ecclesiastes to be a good thing, this human authority. Oh, but woe, O oh land, verse 16, when your king is a child and when your pr princes feast in the morning. In other words, woe to you if your princes are fools. A little folly can undo what would otherwise be a good situation. You see the thread that's running through this. Work is good, and yet it can be undone in a moment. Words can be used by God for great and mighty things. Oh, and yet how much damage foolish words can do. Authority, ruling, government, uh, used by God, meant 
by God for good. And yet how terrible it is, how awful it is to live under a government made up of fools. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility. But the writer understands that's often not the case for many of God's people. Well, what about in the home? Well, in the home, he begins by describing the home in verses 18 and 19. And what does he say about the home? Well, through sloth, the roof sinks in. Home, of course, is meant to be a good thing. It's a blessing of God to have a place to lay your head, to have a place in which your family can live. And yet it can be undone by sloth just as quickly as wise words can be undone by foolish words, just as quickly as government, which is a good thing, can be undone by the folly of childish rulers. And so he says in verse 19 that these things are given to us by God for the moment, for our good. And even in verse 20, look at verse 20. You say, well, if, if the home isn't a place that's free from folly, but surely, surely I can at least go into my own mind. Uh, I, I know that things can happen at work. I know that when my mouth is open, folly can emerge. I know that in, in the sphere of government, there's much folly. Uh, but what about my own mind? Well, in verse 20, he says, even in your own thoughts, be very careful. And he gives a scenario in which folly can ensue. Don't curse the king. Don't think that when you're in your bedroom, no one can hear you. In fact, oftentimes a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. And we've all had this experience where we've spoken something about someone else, thinking that it was within the privacy of just a few friends. And isn't it often the case? Isn't it almost usually the case that those things which are said in private, those thoughts of the mind in the, uttered in the bedroom, somehow make it into the ears of the last person we wanted to hear them? That's the principle of folly. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, it can undo a great deal of good. These little things can undermine all so much good. Now, what's the point of all this? Why does the writer confront us with the dangers of folly, with the fact that dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench? Well, first of all, I would say this. There's an obvious implication that lies, I think, right on the surface of Ecclesiastes uh, 10, which is that life often it doesn't go in the way that we expect it to go, that some of these things actually are out of our control. Now, some of them have to do with actual folly, actually speaking words of folly, but some of them have to do with circumstances that really lie beyond um, moral qualifications at all. The, the man who's digging a pit, the man who's quarrying stone. Uh, life is unpredictable. Uh, we can't always assume that even when we're doing something that we ought to be doing, and even when we're doing it in the right way, that it will always lead to the outcome that we expect. There is a deep disorderedness to our life in a fallen world that should really be part of our everyday expectations. And the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to give us this dose of realism. So often it's the case that people, particularly early in life, but 
This happens to some people throughout their lives, depending on their temperament and their, their own expectations and experiences. People can begin to think that somehow if something, something bad happens to them or if something unexpected happens to someone whom they love, that it's all out of order, that this isn't the way that the world should be. It may even cause them to ask deep questions about God's sovereignty and control. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us a dose of realism that should prevent us from going down that road. You remember what C.S. Lewis said about all the arenas of life. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, and the implication of what he's saying is, and we will, whatever road we go down. The most probable explanation is that we were made for a different world. And this is one of the great lessons of Ecclesiastes. All, all of life, wherever we turn, whether we look inward or look externally at our circumstances, all of these, all of these arenas of life show us a series of uncertain outcomes. And often the absence of the kind of legacy we might think we're owed. The Bible points us toward eternity for fulfillment, the Christ for identity. And this is, I think, one of the clear messages of this book, that the longing and dissatisfaction that we feel in a fallen world, the dose of realism that Ecclesiastes confronts us with, is something that should point us to, some, to that which does last, to that which is predictable and solid. Remember, of course, what St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. Now, that's the situation, and the implication of the situation should temper our expectations of the way life will go. I don't know where any of us will be in five years. I would imagine that at least some of us will have had experiences that we never could have predicted, never could have expected, that nothing in our lives up to that point would have made us think possible. Yet this is life in a fallen world. This is the kind of thing that we actually should expect. Our expectations in this life need to be tempered by the realism of Ecclesiastes 10, which points us to a world that contains folly in it. Now, there are, I think, I think several other very significant implications. One of them, I think, is hinted at really in verse 19. In verse 19, it may seem out of place when he says, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. But what I think the writer of Ecclesiastes is giving us is not a slogan, not a bumper sticker that we're to put on our car as if these are the answers to all of life's problems, but rather a framework for understanding life in a fallen and foolish world. And the framework is this, that we're called to contentment with whatever God has given to us. You see, throughout the book, the writer has said, God, God gives us gifts, and we often don't recognize them when they're in front of us. And so you remember how often in Ecclesiastes, the writer will say, enjoy the life you have with the wife that God has given you. Enjoy these times around the table with your children, because that's the gift that God's given you. That's the reward right there. See, we're liable to miss all the good gifts that God's given, thinking somehow that 
they are not enough for us. And, and I think verse 19 reminds us that even in the midst of folly, we're to exercise contentment. You know, of course, this is one of the great commandments. Don't covet that which is not yours. It's a commandment that gets to the heart of who we are. This chapter points us in the midst of life's difficulties to contentment with what God has given. These are the rewards that you're guaranteed. Whatever it is that God's given you today, he's certainly given you life. You're here. You're awake. You're studying. These are are the gifts that you're to be content with that God has given to you. Of course, the main implication that comes up again and again in Ecclesiastes 10 isn't just about setting expectations and about driving us to contentment with what God's given. It's really about wisdom. And I think that's, that comes up in each section, that while folly can destroy so much, nonetheless, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us, pursue wisdom. Pursue wisdom in every area of your life. Look at verses 1 and 2 for the way in which he juxtaposes these things. We know a little folly can corrupt wisdom. That's verse 1. But we also know in verse 2 that the wise man's heart takes him in the right direction, that wisdom provides direction. We know in verses 5 and 6 that while folly is set in many high places, oh, happy are those who live under wise rulers. We know from verses 8 and 9 that even in the midst of hard work, disaster can befall us. Oh, but in verses 10 and 11, it describes what wisdom would look like in terms of preparation and in terms of working hard. Wisdom and preparation help our work even in the midst of unpredictability. And while we know that a little folly in our words or a little folly in the words we hear can undo much good. Nonetheless, in verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. And in verse 20, when we get to this part about the thoughts of our heart and the the words that we utter to people that we think will never get back to the ears of those of whom we're speaking, what does he say? Well, he gives an example of folly, but he nonetheless, he also uh, tells us what the path of wisdom is, which will keep us from this error. So when we come to the end of Ecclesiastes 10, we're faced clearly with the fact that what we must do as human beings, as those who are following after the Lord, and as those who are engaged in the work of ministry that God's given us to do, is we're to pursue wisdom in all things. So it might, it might do us some good to think here about what wisdom looks like, particularly in the context of pastoral ministry, which is what many of us are preparing for. And I think some of these things are actually themes that are hit upon in Ecclesiastes 10. So we have texts like this, where the Apostle Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And here's how he describes that further, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person, especially in 
disputes. So, so what is the, the wisdom calls us to? The Apostle Paul says, well, he says to all those Colossian believers, uh, wisdom calls you to walk in a certain way with respect to those who are outside the church. That involves speaking in an appropriate fashion. That involves using your time in a wise way. Now, does the Apostle Paul say that will guarantee that nothing bad will happen? You know, of course not. He would never say that. And Ecclesiastes 10 shows us that that's just not the case. But nonetheless, wisdom is better than folly. And we're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What about in disputes, particularly now we're thinking of those in the ministry? What does Paul say to Timothy? Well, he says something that should be that should be pinned on the, the notebook of every seminary student because he talks about youthful passions. And he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then he goes on to say this about youthful passions, which we often associate immediately with sexual sin. What he says is, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Would that be said of you? Is that the way in which you live your life? Is that the way in which you conduct yourself, whether in person or online? Is that, is that what you're known for, particularly as you prepare to enter the gospel ministry? Paul has no shortage of other things to say about wise living. He reminds us to listen to those who are older in the faith than us. 1 Timothy 5, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. What else does wisdom look like? Well, the Apostle Paul says it goes beyond our speech. It goes to our integrity, the integrity of our lives. We know what wisdom has to say about integrity. The Proverbs are full of texts that speak of our integrity. God is a shield Proverbs 2 says, to those who walk in integrity, wisdom is better than folly, and the life of integrity has great rewards. Paul, in fact, when he describes his own ministry, puts that near the heart of it. Our proud confidence is this, he says in 2 Corinthians, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but, by, but, by in the, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Godly wisdom is manifested in the way we speak. It's manifested in the way we receive correction. It's manifested in the way we disagree with others and correct others. And it's manifested in our overall integrity of life. It's the opposite of fleshly wisdom. It's the opposite of what we would normally gravitate towards to build ourselves up. But you know how Paul describes his ministry a little later in that same book. We are not like many, like so many as peddling the word of God, but we speak from sincerity and integrity. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now, in an ultimate sense, when you really think carefully about this notion of wisdom, about the wisdom that we're pointed to in a text like this, even in the midst of an unpredictable world, what you find is that wisdom is described for us and commanded of us 
in the New Testament as well as in the Old. But it's also shown to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, going back to Colossians, what Paul says about Christ and how he uses that same term. He tells them to walk with wisdom toward outsiders. But then he says this. I want, he, he's reminding them that he wants to be together with them, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. The ultimate message of a text like Ecclesiastes 10 is in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of unpredictability, in the midst of a world in which folly is rampant, in which we ourselves are often enmeshed in foolish situations. Look to Christ, Paul says. It's in Christ who, who, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in looking to him, in serving him, in hiding ourselves in him for our salvation, what we find is stability and life eternal. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this text. Oh Lord, use it by your spirit to conform us more to the image of Christ. We are so in need of correction. And we pray that you would correct us and that you would train us and teach us. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.